You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine, produced in cooperation with AMDA. Your host is Dr. Eric Tangelos, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and a Certified Medical Director in Long-Term Care. Some forgetfulness is a normal part of the aging process, but can also be overlooked as an early symptom of cognitive impairment. How can physicians distinguish between common memory loss and cognitive impairment? What activities, medications, and other strategies can help physicians slow cognitive decline in these patients? Joining us to discuss assessing and maximizing cognitive function in long-term care is Dr. David Smith, professor of family medicine at the College of Medicine at Texas A&M University, College Station and president of Geriatric Consultants of Central Texas in Brownwood, Texas. David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. So let's talk about the most common types of cognitive impairment and memory issues in patients and in long-term care facilities. Oh, gosh. About 70% of our patients in long-term care suffer from memory impairment and dementia. Certainly, that predisposes a significant number of them to episodes of delirium as well, particularly when they're ill. We run the gamut in the uh, nursing home all the way from people that are minimally impaired and may suffer what we call minimum cognitive impairment to those with mild dementia, moderate dementia, or severe and even end-stage dementia. Many times, as we think about the long-term care population, we think specifically about the individual who is going to be a long stayer, uh, be there for uh, essentially the rest of their life. But uh, it's important to recognize that about half of our population based on admissions are people who will rehabilitate and return to the community. So they largely have the same epidemiology for memory loss as those who reside in the community. Do you want to talk a little bit about what type of dementia might be their families these days? are all hopped up about making sure that they know exactly what it is versus not what it is and uh, are splitting hairs or lumping the best way to go? Diagnosis is important, in my opinion. There is a neurologist in my trade area that doesn't put much effort into diagnosis because he says, uh, well, the treatment is kind of all the same and there's not much we can do. But I think diagnosis is very important for some of the nuances of treatment, probably more importantly for understanding the disease process when it is familial and using that opportunity as a teachable moment to talk to family members about their own risks and various aspects of prevention. I think it also really, really helps us to prognosticate Some things are likely to move along rather rapidly. Others can be expected to be pretty static and not move along. Some are prone to pretty good success with treatment and others not. You brought up an issue, a very nice concept that I want to pursue with our discussion today about the patients that come in and get dismissed and the patients that come in and stay. Let's talk about the ones that come in and get dismissed that have cognitive difficulties. Do you take a different approach with regards to those people that you have for just a little bit of time versus the ones that you're going to take care of for a long period of time? Well, yes and no. 
you know me well, Eric. You know I speak out of both sides of my mouth a lot. <laughs> but uh, in this case, as far as the actual mechanics of assessment, I would say no. Everybody, whether they're short or long stay, deserves an assessment of their cognition. And that can start with the cognitive portion of the MDS, but usually needs to be enhanced with some other testing like uh, St. Louis University Mental Status Examination or the MMSE. The difference, I think, is the part that the cognitive deficit may play in our overall care planning. And for the long-stay individual, that will factor into their custodial care. But the recognition of a deficit and what level of the, is that deficit in the short-stayer would have profound importance to how you would go about their rehabilitation for perhaps something totally different that they're in for to rehab a total knee or a total hip, and then for planning a successful transition back to community care. Without recognizing a, let's say, a mild deficit, I can imagine that the individual might not really retain or learn what was being taught to them in rehab and then on return to home might be prone to accidents, to drug mishap, to a variety of other outcomes that would not be in their best interest. I would oftentimes, I still say this, that when I've got a new admission at the facility, if they're cognitively intact, you know, hope springs eternal, very likely I've got a good chance at rehabbing them. And if we missed their cognitive deficiencies, we're really putting them at risk and and we're not doing the things that we should be doing. Sure. And just like you hear the discussion about when the elder is in the office, that you cannot assess a mild deficit just with casual conversation or even the kind of conversation we ordinarily do in an office visit, the same is true in the nursing home. And you'll get folks that are very socially appropriate and who will sit there and because they want to please you, they'll nod and act like they understand every word you're saying, but maybe that's not exactly what's happening there. Yeah, we used to have the story of one patient, husband and wife, and they would quiz each other as they were coming to the doctor's office on the mini mental state examination and current events so that they could please the physician in the office. (laughs) Interesting. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Tangalos, and joining me to discuss assessing and maximizing cognitive function in long-term care is Dr. David Smith, professor of family medicine at the College of Medicine at Texas A&M University College Station and president of geriatric consultants of Central Texas in Brownwood, Texas. We've already started a discussion about home-going capabilities. I want to talk about the evaluation of capacity. I know you do this very, very well. Let's talk about capacity as it pertains to what people can do, what they can't do, what their level of cognition is as it fits with capacity. Separate out that categorization for us. Well, yeah, you kind of struck on something that has a special emotional importance to me. I feel like the current practice in long-term care is oftentimes a little sloppy, and we find people that are capacitated whose adult daughter presents to the admissions folks and ends up getting listed as the responsible party on the chart, and a perfectly capacitated elder is bypassed in decision-making. On the other hand, I have a number of demented or chronically mentally ill patients 
who are clearly not mentally capacitated but have no family members, just there's nobody around to be their guardian or surrogate decision maker, and the face sheet will say responsible party self. Well, they're not their own responsible party because they are not capacitated, and uh, that creates a lot of problems. Many times the treatment team needs to step in, even though there is an implied conflict of interest, and become the surrogate decision maker for that kind of an individual. As far as assessing the capacity, when there is some evidence that the resident has some problems with cognition, then it's time to enter that thought into your personal computer to assess capacity in a formal way. This includes all of the things that are on a mental status examination, uh, but additionally, you want to assess judgment, their ability to think in the abstract, to be sure that an individual has not been influenced in some undue way, that they are not being pressured in their decisions. And then you can look at the actual decision at hand and see whether the individual is showing an appropriate ability to communicate and negotiate and even to compromise in their own best interest with others because our rights do not exist in a vacuum. They have to interdigitate with other people's rights. So all of those things come into play. Judgment, orientation, memory, the ability to think in the abstract, and the ability to do arithmetic calculation are all part of the mix. For a benchmark, but not absolutely not an either-or criteria, some studies have shown that a score of 19 or above on an MMSE usually underscore usually, is associated with mental capacity, and below that, usually not. But you don't want to use that as a single criteria by any means. David, let's now turn our attention to the activities and environments that can help maximize cognitive function. There's a lot out there in the culture of long-term care, and I think we're doing a good job in many ways with this area Although there is a paucity of randomized control trials to really indicate which of these techniques have efficacy and which are a bit fluffy, as Dr. Brechtsbauer and I said in our RACL chapter, these kinds of techniques usually don't cost very much money and they don't have any medical downside, though, going on outings, having reorientation classes, doing reminiscence therapy, that sort of thing. And so there's very little harm in performing these tactics, even if they aren't uh, particularly efficacious. They may have side benefits, just that the person is active, is getting some exercise, is enjoying their life. But things that are, I believe, really of quite a bit of benefit in regard to activities in milieu is keeping a routine so that there isn't a lot of guesswork in the day. You know, this is what's happening to the stock market. When we have an unsecure future, we don't know what to do. (laughs) The same is true in the nursing home. The milieu should be free of clutter and noise. For the more severe patients, you want to avoid things like hot colors or uh, mirrors or TVs and radios that will foster illusions They're not delusions because there's a factor in the environment that actually precipitates the person's uh, misperception, but they are definitely illusions. 
Well, let's do this. Let's stay on this vein. We're talking about non-drug interventions right now. And any technologies that you might want to employ for patients with cognitive impairment? Well, I'm out there in very rural America in homes with very little in the way of extra resources. So I don't have much firsthand experience with that, but I am aware of the use of computers and computer games and uh, the like. Of course, on the safety side, we have our alarm systems, wander guards, and my personal wish list is for some medical device company to come up with a proximity alarm so that two residents, one of which is a potential victim and another is a potential perpetrator, can be moved apart should the setting be for an altercation. Well, you know, David, we don't have a lot of time to talk about the medications, but the take-home right here, let's stay with this as the final piece. You know an awful lot about psychiatric drugs in the elderly. Anything else you want to say about drug therapy that our audience may not be aware of? Yeah, I think one of the biggies that is not really recognized is that when we use any class of medication simply to sedate or tranquilize, we are doing chemical restraint, which is in most cases not appropriate. When I say in most cases, it can be appropriate for a temporary solution while you're getting your treatment team together to determine what is causing this behavior and what can I do about it that's more constructive than just restraining it. Another is to recognize that uh, drugs like the benzodiazepines that are often used to control behavior as chemical restraints and not really to reduce anxiety, that's what's given lip service on the chart, but probably not really true, that those drugs are prone to causing disinhibition. And many of our dementia patients already have some disinhibition. That's from frontal lobe pathology. They don't have the same checks and balances on their behavior as you or I, or maybe as you. And if you give a benzo, it's like giving alcohol to a bad drunk. The effects are not right always in your face, so it's hard to make a cause-and-effect relationship but if you withdraw these drugs and then carefully, objectively look to behavior, you'll find out that you were causing more trouble than you were helping. I would like to thank my guest from Texas A&M University College of Medicine, Dr. David Smith. David, thank you very much for being our guest this week on Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine. A pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Advances in Long-Term Care Medicine is produced in cooperation with AMDA. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.